morning, open with me to 1 Kings, the 19th chapter. For those of you who are Bible students, you will recognize this story uh, right off the bat. And we're just going to read verse 9. In the NIV, 1 Kings 19.9 says this. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look right up here on the screen behind me. In the New International Version, the Bible says, There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? This morning, I want to take just a few minutes and speak to you about Elijah. Now, we are in, this is the fourth installment of our series on depression, concerning depression. And we're going to look at Elijah for just a few minutes today. Um, And with that said, I want you to keep this series in the back of your head as you listen to the events that unfold here as we share God's Word. Um, with Just like we talked about Paul two weeks ago, Elijah isn't exactly what we would call a case that would suggest a man that ever had to contend with feelings of depression and anxiety. I mean, let's be honest with you. This guy, he's a tough cat. And you just don't read about him and think, yeah, he's probably depressed. That's just not the impression you get with Elijah. However, in 1 Kings chapter 19, as it would suggest, that isn't always the armor that we wear. It's not always that the tough exterior and the the, the strong approach to life is not immune to such difficulties and issues. One moment, please. (coughs) Would you give me a water, please? Thanks, son. 1 Kings chapter 19 comes hot on the heels of, you guessed it, 1 Kings chapter 18. Yeah, that's tricky that way, theologically. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, this is where Elijah had just completely humiliated, thank you, King Ahab. And since he humiliated King Ahab, by default, he also humiliated his psychopathic wife, Jezebel. This humiliation all transpired in a contest on Mount Carmel, which I've always found to be a delicious-sounding mountain. And this, what happened on Mount Carmel is a little contest that we like to call the God who answers by fire, He is God. Right now, you insert the, the music. Nobody, huh? Nobody at all. Thanks a bunch. We got home and in bed after 3 a.m. yesterday. You're not more tired than I am. Laugh at my jokes. 
And what's sad about that is when you say, laugh at my jokes, I don't know if you're being sincere or not. Because it's not like, oh, that was funny. No, it's like, oh, he said laugh. Ha, 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 ha. You know, it's a... Anyway, this whole story in 1 Kings 18, where Elijah humiliates Ahab, we all know this story. The Lord tells Elijah, go to King Ahab and confront him concerning the fact that he had, first of all, in verse 18 of chapter 18, the Bible says King Ahab had abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. In other words, he was a Baal worshiper now. He had turned the whole country that way. But in verse 4 of that same chapter, there was another little bit of a problem going on here that kind of annoyed God, and He wanted Elijah to address. And this was the problem that we can read about in verse 4. It says, Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets. She's a treasure. Boy, she's a fine one. That's the kind of girl, young single guys, pay attention. This is the kind of girl you want to bring home to meet mom and dad. Okay? This is the kind of girl who is a psychopath. So, with these problems, number one, Ahab in instituting Baal worship and Jezebel going around and killing the Lord God's prophets, um, a contest was conducted on yummy Mount Carmel to determine who Israel was going to follow. Were they going to follow God Jehovah or were they going to follow Baal? So there's where we're at. This is the play-by-play, and I want to read this to you. We're in 18th chapter 1 Kings, 25th verse, and we're going to read all the way through 39. I know that's a lot of Scripture, but in the event you don't know this story, this is how it goes. This is the play-by-play. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bowls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. There are 450 of them, just for those of you who don't know. There's also an additional 400 prophets of Asherah. So we're looking at a lot of people. So Elijah, being all by himself, gives the flip of the coin to the Baal worshippers. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Now I want you to understand here, we have two bulls present. This is Texas. People understand the size of cattle. Bulls are not little animals. Each Team, Team God and Team Baal, have a bull. And they're both standing over there chewing their cud. Got it? Elijah says, okay, here's the rules of engagement. Number one, you get to go first. Since there's so many of you and everybody's going to want to turn at something. You get to go first. Go prepare your bull. 
they have to go from a living animal to a dead one, processed and ready for sacrifice. Capiche? That in and of itself. Any deer hunters here? That's not the fastest of all processes. You put that into something weighing roughly half of a ton or more. That's a long process. You've got some time on your hands. So here these prophets are preparing their animal and they get started with their sacrifice. They do this, prep the sacrifice, get him wherever they're going to lay him for the sacrifice, and they call on the name of Baal from whenever that point starts in the morning. Because the Bible says, from morning till noon. Okay? So not only do they have the prep of the animal, now they're calling on their God for hours on end. Everybody got this picture? Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. There's always one in the crowd. If you're not good at whatever it is you're doing, and you're in st on stage doing it, there will be hecklers. I really believe, family of God, that we just got, through Elijah, the right to heckle. Okay? I'm just saying it. It's my opinion and mine alone, but I'm standing by it. Shout louder, he said. Surely, he is a God. Perhaps, he's in deep thought. Or busy. Or traveling. That's what's wrong. He's not in the immediate vicinity. He's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So, I think that's funny. So, the Bible says, as a re in other words, as a result of Elijah taunting and heckling them, they're like, don't! No Homer Simpson fans here at all. Really? They're like, yeah! And so they start doing this more. Louder. The Bible says they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until blood flowed. I'm sorry. I'm a minister. I can relate to these prophets of Baal in that there are certain things you do as is custom and stuff. But if I'm having to cut myself up just to get God to hear me, I'm changing denominations. I ain't staying. Okay? Alright, moving along. Midday. Now remember, this is morning till noon. Midday, the Bible says, passed. And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. What time is the evening sacrifice? Well, in Old Testament times, at this stage in history, it's kind of hard to nail it down. But just let's, let's put it somewhere pre-sunset. Late afternoon, okay? Until the evening sacrifice. And that's important. 
They did this until the evening sacrifice. What is that referring to? Jewish sacrificial times. Make note of that. But there was no response. No one answered. I love this one. No one paid attention. I can just see Elijah. By this time, this many hours in, Elijah is somewhere leaned up against something playing Candy Crush. Something is happening where, I mean, no one at this All of Israel is gathered, and here's Israel. Do I have anything in my teeth? And these people are cutting themselves, they're dancing, they're shouting, and people are standing around going, where are you going next week? Did you go to that new restaurant I heard about it was good? And this is, no one's paying attention. Certainly not their gods. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. Basically, he's going to rally the troops to help him. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. So here they are, all over there, watching this fiasco. And he says, come on, we're going to change the channel. Okay? We're leaving network programming, and we're going straight to satellite. Come on. Elijah took twelve stones, one of each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord uh, had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two shias of seed. He arranged um, the wood, cut the bull. Now here we have another processing situation going on with this big animal. Only this time he's running this show by himself. Cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Here we go. Remember I referred to the evening sacrifice before? At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. So now, we have just left the world's show. We've just left the enemy's escapades and we have shown up right here in time to pay homage to God. Set aside a place for Him and set it up where there is absolutely no question as to when this event occurs. No one can take credit but Him. And we're going to do it when He says, have the sacrifice. And then in, under His breath, I can hear Elijah as he glances over at the prophets of Baal and he says, you hide and watch this. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. If the punctuation and sentence structure are accurate here, he no sooner gets these words of this prayer out and the Bible says, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, which is soaking wet, 
the wood, which is drenched, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they did what you just did. That wasn't bad. Hey, Elijah, can you do that again next week? I'm going to have a party. That would be a great party event. Could you please? That's what they did, right? No. You don't see fire come down from heaven and God Himself decimate everything from the dirt up and go, that's not bad. No. When all the people saw this, what did they do? They fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. And I can see all the prophets of Baal. And I know that there had to be one of them in that 450 go, Oh, we're in trouble. Looks at his buddy, This is bad. Well, what's interesting about this contest is this isn't where it ends. See, we just stopped at verse 39. We need to go one more verse. Watch this. Then Elijah commanded them. This is Israel, surrounded on Mount Carmel watching this contest, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. You're thinking, oh, well, why didn't he evangelize them? The Word of the Lord just came. He showed himself out. Why? Because God was annoyed. What had we figured out? Why Elijah even started this contest? Because one, Ahab started worshiping the Baals and made it official. And two, his psychopath wife, she was killing all the prophets of God. And God says, yeah, no, I don't think so. And so there's the end of the contest. And man, I'm going to be honest with you, when you're standing in Elijah's sandals and you're sitting here in church in 2023 and you read that this is how this contest went, you're thinking, yes! That's some good stuff! I'm sorry, I'm one-handed and can't open this. Much better. It's all and we love victory stories about God and the Bible and the body of Christ and, and Israel. We love victory stories. And you know, when you're thinking, this is how it should be in the church. Man, taking out the devil. But Jezebel wasn't just a queen. 
She's also a spirit. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to warn you. You set about in your life living around Mount Carmel and taking out the devil. Jezebel's coming for you. People want to know why things go so wrong for Christians so frequently. Why do you ask that at all? Don't expect it. The Lord Jesus Himself said, you will have persecution. Get ready for that. And every story in the Bible is going to illustrate the fact that as you live your Christian life, You are living a life of change from your existence that was Egypt to now the promise. That is a fight every single day. So don't get freaked out when Jezebel comes calling. Don't. You might as well get used to it because she's calling. And as victory as all this sounds... The resulting fury experienced by this, the queen of Israel, was anything but victorious. She was furious. Ahab told his wife about what had happened on Mount Carmel. And that all 450 of her imported prophets from her home state, her home folk had been slaughtered. Jezebel put out a contract on Elijah, and that contract, according to her words, was to be fulfilled inside the, the, the uh, framework of 24 hours. 24 hours. It was at this point, right here, after that amazing event that occurred on Mount Carmel with with Elijah watching the shenanigans of these pagans, taunting them, making fun of them, making fun of their God, and then on a wholesale level, destroying Ahab's reputation. Right then and there, something changed in Elijah. Something snapped. Something broke. Chapter 19, verse 3 of 1 Kings says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, From a strictly human perspective, him getting news about Jezebel's attitude toward him and his subsequent fear for you and me, that makes total sense. From a human perspective, that makes a great deal of sense. Why? Simple. Jezebel was a malevolent pagan who seamlessly married the dark and insidious with the sadistic. She was so sick and twisted. There's a story only two chapters later in God's Word. 1 Kings chapter 21. This woman, the gem that she was, 
arranged to have a Jezreelite by the name of Naboth. Your run-of-the-mill, nice, upstanding citizen kind of guy who just happened to be a landowner. But it wasn't any land. It was inherited family land that he took possession of from his dad. And it happened to be a vineyard. And because Ahab wanted this piece of property, and the gentleman would not hand it over, he went home and whined and pouted. We all know this story. Jezebel shows up and says, you hide and watch me get this for you. She arranged for Naboth to not only be falsely accused, but public and publicly discredited, but she also had him summarily executed by stoning by the same crowd who went from socializing with him at one moment. One moment. They're all partying publicly. That same crowd, the next moment, when he had been discredited and a lie was spread about him, they stoned him to death in the very next moment. Why? All because Ahab wanted his vineyard. And Jezebel, that sick, twisted freak, wanted to get it for him. 1 Kings 19.3, first part, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. The Hebrew here for Elijah was afraid. The Hebrew here translates this. Elijah saw. Elijah saw. In other words, after everything that had just happened on Mount Carmel, this woman, incensed by what has happened, puts a contract out on him and he sees what's coming down the road. He takes his eye off the God he had just prayed to and said, answer me. And he looks down at her. Elijah would employ, would, I mean, Elijah had enjoyed the experience of hosting the presence of God through seven documented miracles in his prophetic career. Four of them had been performed at this point in the Bible. Four of them had already been performed. But he had never had his life threatened like this. This was differently. Sud- different. Suddenly, Elijah was in a storm that he had not anticipated. Suddenly, he went from the mountaintop We all know this analogy. Into a storm that he did not see coming. And isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters, how God doesn't tell us everything when you're in the middle of walking out His will? Isn't it interesting how He doesn't say, oh, by the way, when you get done wiping out the 450 prophets of Baal and you make the king feel like a total and complete moron, You're totally going to annoy his wife and she's a sick, twisted freak. And she's coming after you and you're going to die. And you're like, praise God for His will. Isn't it funny how God doesn't tell us everything? Suddenly, Elijah was living out a story 
that hadn't even been written yet. And it hadn't been written yet because the key actor in that story hadn't even been born. And wouldn't be born for another 900 years. Elijah found himself just like Peter. Previously enjoying the perks of God's presence, but suddenly thrust into a storm that he had not prepared for. Matthew chapter 14. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. So far, this story is looking great. But when he saw... Remember what I said? That Elijah was afraid? That translates in the Hebrew that Elijah saw. The Bible says here in Matthew 14, but when he saw the wind... He was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Like Elijah 900 years earlier, Peter saw the storm and was afraid. This is exactly where Elijah found himself. Like Peter, Elijah, metaphorically walking on the water with God, saw just how inadequate and how unqualified he was to walk in the places where God walks. And he was afraid. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you something. If you will let him, he will have you walk where he walks. The key is realizing your inadequacy. And don't ever take your eyes off of Him. When God walks, He doesn't look around at circumstances to see if everything's alright. He doesn't get distracted by His surroundings or the environment in which He finds Himself in. We do Peter did. Elijah did. God transcends circumstances, brothers and sisters. God ignores the surroundings that are around Him. And God changes His environment to meet His needs and His pleasure and His whim. When He calls us to accomplish something for Him in His name... We walk where He walks. We walk how He walks. We need to look at Him. How many of you answer this in your own heart, not in your by raised hand? I, could, I don't imagine I could get a raised hand if I, my life depended on it with this question. How many of you have been asked by God to do something and you said, God, are you nuts? Do you see what's going on here? Ah, you're like you're like the old life commercial. I ain't eating it. Let's get Mikey. Yeah, he won't eat it. He hates everything. How many of you have ever told God? Mm-mm. 
Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Do you know when God asks you to accomplish a thing, what He's asking you to do? He's saying, walk where I walk. Walk like I walk. I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It doesn't matter what storm is on the ocean. You said you want to jump out of the boat. Look at me. You guys gave your hearts and your lives to Jesus Christ. You said, you said it. You said, if that's you, get me out of the boat. Your words, not mine. When he says, you might just as well, I'm here, nothing can hurt you. Yes? You jump out of the boat, and that's when, once we get out onto the stormy sea, that's when we start looking around. It all looks so cool at first. Until it's not cool anymore because we take our eyes off Him. The calm in the storm. He is the calm. And every time, it doesn't matter that the winds are blustering and the waves are tearing everything up and they're crashing and they're white caps. Every time, why do you think God said, wherever your foot shall land, I've given that to you? Why? Because when he walks on stormy seas, every time his foot touches the water, it bows. It doesn't matter what's one foot away. It bows to His foot. It gives way to the authority of His foot. And He told us, wherever your foot shall tread, I have given that to you. Where He walks, you walk. If He's called you to it, in His name, when you set your foot down in the storm, the storm bows Not because you're a thing to Him, but it's because He is in you. And they see His foot, not yours. That was so good, I've lost my place. As a result of Elijah seeing, being afraid, and running for his life. 1 Kings 19 and 4 says this, While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. That's just a fraction of part of verse 4, but that's where we're going to stop. Now, you may find this difficult to believe, hard to believe. But if a person walking, a walker, is well-trained, they're in shape. And Elijah would be well-trained. He would have been in shape. Why? Because Elijah walked everywhere he went. So he had some walking legs, right? Okay. If a walker is well-trained... And they take periodic breaks. A walker can walk about 20 miles a day. Okay? Now, if that same well-trained walker takes no breaks at all, 
and has a really stiff pace. They're moving down the road. They can cover as much as 30 miles a day. Remember, verse 4 says, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So when Scripture says that Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness, we have to realize the fact that he could have actually traveled as far as a 20-plus mile walk south away from Mount Carmel, fueled on fear alone. 20-plus miles. We know that he traveled south. We know that. Because verse 4 of this chapter tells us that when he stopped walking, he landed at Horeb, the Mount of God. Most people refer to or know Horeb as Mount Sinai. Okay? By the way, a little commercial break. Realizing that a well-trained walker can go 20 to 30 miles a day. Do you know what the current world record for a 24-hour walk is? 24 hours, a man out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, walking on the 18th and 19th of September in 1976, walked 142 miles, 440 yards in 24 hours. I don't think that's what Elijah did. But that happened. That was just, we're done with the commercial now. We're going back to preaching. I want to show you on the map. This is a map. Israel is up here. Okay? This is the Sinai Peninsula. Egypt is over here. So this is all North East Africa. Mount Carmel. See this little hook? Mount Carmel sits right there. He went 20 to 30 miles, 20 plus miles out of here on the first day. Just to escape Jezebel. Over the next 40 days, he ended up down here. This is where Mount Sinai is, on the Sinai Peninsula. All on foot, in 41 days. 41 day journey. One day to escape Jezebel. 40 days to Mount Sinai, all fueled by fear. An angel who decided to drop by, fresh-baked bread, and some water. That trip is somewhere between three and 400 miles, closer to 300. And it's when he gets down there, when he gets down to the Sinai Peninsula, near the tip of the Sinai Peninsula, he finds a cave, and he crawls up inside the cave. Brothers and sisters, if you've ever been depressed, there's, there's one thing that you want. It's a cave. You know those stereotypes about people who are depressed, how they don't want to get out of bed every day? They'd rather just stay in bed? That's a cave. That's what depression looks like. When you're depressed and you're afraid, you find a cave. That cave may look like all kinds of different things. Elijah found an actual 
physical, geographical cave. And that's where he went in. And it was there, while he was inside that cave, something spoke to him. Correction. Someone said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He had just a month and a week earlier just seen the wholesale slaughter of a pagan religion in his home country. And he was the star of the show. A month and a week later, he's curled up in a cave, depressed, in the dark, and alone. He went a month and a week without hearing the voice of God. And suddenly in the place, in the midst, in the middle of his depression, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, you know, there's really two ways you can read that verse or that, script, that, that line. It can be, what are you doing here, Elijah? Or, what are you doing here, Elijah? See, one has to do with his activities. The other has to do with his proximity. And in God's case, when God asked this question, He wanted to know both. What are you doing here, Elijah? In verse 10, and then again in verse 14, Elijah encapsulates what he had told God 40 days earlier in verses 4 and 5. This is what he said to God back there. 40 days earlier, he said, he, well, the Bible says, He came to a broom bush, sat under it, prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. That was when he was a day's journey out of Jezreel, out of Mount Carmel. That's what he said. What is it, brothers and sisters, what is it with prophets, bushes, and wanting to die? What is it with people? If I can just have something bad happen to me, and I can find a good bush, I'm going to pray that God kill me. I'm a musician. And I thought musicians were temperamental. It's times like this, right here. I've had enough. Take my life. I'm going to lay down and go to sleep, and hopefully I'm never going to wake up again. It's times like that when it is as though we simply cannot go on. And life becomes what we perceive to be its most difficult. We've done all that we, that's important, know to do. We've done the best that we can do to honor God in our life and in our living. When a person genuinely feels like it's just them against the world. It feels as though no one is around to support you. There's no one who seems to care. No one is asking, hey, how are you doing? It feels like no matter what you do, it's not enough. Even if you eradicate the prophets of Baal in your hometown, it's just... 
Not enough. And at times, through the tears and through the gritted teeth, you wonder, where are you, God? Where are you, Lord? Because you just feel alone. Elijah said this, verses 10 and 14 of chapter 19, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Now tell me about this. Tell me, does this sound like anything you've ever said to God? And I don't mean the words, I mean the sentiment. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Remember, he's saying this in response to God's question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, let me tell you what I'm doing here, God. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. That's you. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. I am the only one left. Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt alone, hot on the heels of having entertained the presence of God in a way that's powerful? And the next moment you feel alone even though there are people all around you. It's a feeling of aloneness that the physical presence of people cannot touch. It's an inside isolation with a crippling combination of circumstances, thoughts, and emotions when they come together to make you say, no one knows. No one knows what I'm feeling. No one knows what I've experienced. No one knows how bad this is. No one knows. And you're in a crowd. God. You know that saying, there's an app for that. And there's an app for everything. Well, guess what? God has an answer for your aloneness. God has an answer for your isolation. The Bible says that in a still, the word still means calm. The Hebrew says very little voice. In a calm, very little voice. The Lord whispered to the fatigue-stricken, fear-laden prophet after he's told God twice everything about what's going on and how he feels. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Right there, after verse 14, God doesn't even answer Elijah. Not right off. He doesn't even respond to Elijah's statement. I've been zealous. I've been doing this. They're doing that. And it's all terrible and you don't know anything about it. Right after he gets done with that, the Lord God gives Elijah, without even addressing that, 
some instructions for some errands that God wants done. And as if the Lord then says, oh, now that I've got your attention and I need you to go do this stuff for me, by the way, I needed to tell you this. Verse 18, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. What does that mean? This is what it means. You are not alone. You are not alone. When you've been told in your head and in your heart you are alone, look at me. That is a lie. You are not alone. And if those 7,000 weren't present, and by the way, he's addressing the prophets. Remember, they've killed the prophets with the sword. I'm the only one left. And they're after me too. God says, no, I've got 7,000 more. He's talking about men of God. You're never alone. And even if there weren't 7,000, He said, I will never leave you. Nor forsake you. It doesn't matter if you've been over a month from hearing His voice. He told you to go to Carmel. He told you to take Ahab out of Jezreel and bring his prophets to the mountain because he's going to deal with them. He told you to walk where he walks. He told you to walk like he walks. And your month of solitary confinement is of your own making. Break that bondage. You are not alone. Deuteronomy chapter 31. And I'm concluding. Deuteronomy chapter 31. The Lord Himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. The psalmist said in the 118th Psalm, When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. And what, what's the Scripture say that we love to quote? If God be for us, who can be against us? And then Jesus turns right around and echoes that. Matthew chapter 28. This is the Great Commission. Surely. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Are you in a cave 
Have you found yourself in a cave before? Are circumstances driving you back into a cave? <laughs> Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. You are not alone. Don't you buy the lie that will drive you into your cave of comforting covers and pillows with Oprah on television while you drink Dr. Pepper by the 12-pack and eating potato chips all day long. Don't you let depression and anxiety destroy you. You are not alone. The reality is very simple. God asks you to do great things. Now, I'm not telling you God is going to say, look, you need to go up to Mount Carmel and kill a bunch of bad prophets. He's probably not going to do that. Why? You'd have to really, really pack up the place and move to get anywhere near Mount Carmel. That was supposed to be funny. It obviously wasn't. God's not going to ask you to go slaughter 450 prophets of Baal. But in your own world, you're living the circle that you are extended to. He's going to ask you to do great things. You don't know what's going on in the unseen in your world. He's asking you to confront that world. Look. The reputation of the church, the utter and complete disregard for the love of God is rampant. What's different with your world than with Elijah's? Nothing at all is different. The prophets are being killed. They're not worshiping God anymore. They're worshiping a, a, a false god, Baal. It's the same world. And he's asking you to go call His name in public. When you do, you are really going to anger Jezebel. Because she's still out there. Why do you think people are still, quote, killing the prophets, end quote? Talking bad about ministers. Talking bad about ministry. Talking down about Christians. Because Jezebel is still out there. She's killing the prophets. And her husband, the devil is turning everyone from God and to the worship of anything else at all, including themselves. This is the single most narcissistic society I've ever seen in my life. We were at a restaurant last night. It was late at night because we had come we were coming back from the hospital. Well, no, we hadn't come back yet. We were actually getting food for the Atkinsons and, and us. We hadn't eaten. We're sitting there in the drive-thru at In-N-Out. And I'm sorry. If God 
is anywhere in the world, he's at In-N-Out. That and Chick-fil-A. And we're looking through the, the, the window there, the drive through window, into the restaurant. And there are these three girls, pretty girls, really pretty girls. And, I, and I'm talking about young women. Really pretty young women sitting there in a booth, and I'm in the back seat. And I start laughing. I just start laughing because I've never seen this, Tyler. I've seen the photographs. But I've never seen it myself. And I start laughing. Because these three pretty girls, all dressed in short-skirted dresses and heels and everything, real pretty girls, and they're all sitting there in in and out. They're defiling the temple. And they're all sitting there, and I'm laughing from the backseat. Because here are these three women... And I'm just, and I can't type it together. I'm laughing so hard. The most narcissistic society ever because Ahab has turned the hearts from God. And Jezebel is assassinating the ministry. And we go out and we minister God's Word in our little bit of the world. We're a light in a dark place. And Jezebel decides she's going to put a hit out on us. And what do we do? God must not have been in that. I'm going to find me a cave. That's a lie. That's a lie. Do you know how I know it is? Because ultimately, in no time flat, in this book, where does Jezebel end up? She's dog food. You stand up for your Christianity. You stand up for your Christ. You lift His name up. You be Elijah on Carmel. And you show what God can do in a life because His fire is going to decimate the sacrifice. And God always likes it to draw sacrifices. You're that sacrifice. And you are the sweet-smelling savor in His nostrils. Offer it. People are going to be changed. And when Jezebel says, "Uh uh-uh, you say... Look, Alpo. Greater is he that is within me than he that is in this world, and you're in this world, and you're nothing but kibbles and bits. Stand with me this morning.